Lord, we thank you just for the joy of worshiping you, of recognizing your goodness, your love, just the wonder of, of your character. Lord, as we approach your word, we want to receive it as your loving gift, not as a burden imposed, but as freedom and life from your hand. And so we receive it. Open our hearts, open our eyes, open my mouth, open our ears, we pray. It's in your son's name. Amen. The other day we uh, had a discussion at staff meeting about wearing bicycle helmets. And I told them that at least kind of where my thinking is right now, that I probably will never wear a bicycle helmet when I'm just riding around on the streets around my house. Now, I don't mean to be insulting or in any way uh, uh, put down to those of you very smart people who wear bicycle helmets. In fact, my wife is a school nurse, and she teaches the students the importance of wearing bicycle helmets. And I've had uh, several emergency room doctors and nurses caught me after the first service to uh, rebuke me on uh, my position. And I know that sooner or later God will get me, and I'll probably be wearing a bicycle helmet. But the problem is I feel dorky when I wear one. I, I feel silly. <laughs> you know, the, the, I, I tell myself, you know, I, I have ridden a bicycle all my life. I have had plenty of accidents. I've lost a lot of skin to road rashes. And neither I nor any of my friends ever had a head injury. So I tell myself the, the uh, risk does not warrant the uh, inconvenience. And so I probably won't wear a bicycle helmet. Now, what does that have to do with the Ten Commandments. Well, stick with me. Because this morning, I'm going to try to convince all of you to wear some very important bicycle helmets. And you're going to be saying to yourself, ah, that'll be, I'll look dorky. I'll feel silly. That's not that big a risk. But that's not true. It is important enough you need to be wearing your helmet in these cases. Now, the first commandment we're going to look at this morning is the seventh commandment. Deuteronomy 5.18. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Five very simple, clear words that we all agree with. Yet, we as a church are still working through the revelations of an adulterous affair within our leadership. This is happening all over the Christian world. And I know a lot of you are shaking your head saying, how can this be? But I'm absolutely convinced that right now, listening to me speak, there are some people sitting next to you who are involved right now in an adulterous affair. There are Several of you who are moving very close to that. You're pushing the lines. And there are others who will be dealing with this in the next several months. Christianity Today, which is a very conservative Christian magazine, did a survey of their readers. They found that 23% of the pastors surveyed, conservative Christian pastors, 23% have had sexual relationships outside of their marriage. That's nearly one in four. And when they surveyed the laity, the non-pastors, it was slightly higher. 28% of the Christians, the conservative Christians that were surveyed, 
had had sexual relationships outside of their marriage. That's over a quarter. These people demographically are exactly the same as you. Now, i got to tell you, if one out of every four of my friends growing up had splattered their brains in bicycle accidents, you better believe I would wear a bicycle helmet. My, you know, my, my saying that it doesn't warrant the inconvenience that it couldn't happen to me would sound pretty hollow and stupid. In fact, if, if I were, were, were to, to, uh, to worry about looking dorky or feeling silly, I would be a fool. Well, this morning, I want to talk a little bit about how to protect ourselves. The bicycle helmets we should be wearing. But I want to do that in a minute. First, I want to talk about why we need to. Why we are all vulnerable. Now, it's important for us to start with an understanding that our sexuality is a very important, a very large part of who we are. Every one of us. In fact, we're told that in the beginning, God created us in His image. We are spiritual beings, first and foremost. We are created with the ability to relate to God spiritually. But then the very next phrase in the creation account tells us that He made us sexual beings as well. Male and female, He created them. You see, our sexuality is second only to our spirituality. It is the second most dominant, important, basic, fundamental part of who we are. Second only to our spirituality. Now, throughout the laws of the uh, Old Testament, through the Deuteronomic laws, Moses is very careful to separate sexuality from worship. Because in the religions of his day, in the Near East during Moses' day, Worship was expressed sexually. The way people worshipped, they would go to the temple and have sex with temple prostitutes, both male and female. The, the, uh, much of the, the ritual was very sexualized. This is because when people cease to be spiritually healthy, that is, they cease to be in a submissive relationship with the true God, their sexuality begins to dominate them. Because it's such a a significant, important, powerful part of our personalities. Unless our sexuality is, is, is held in check by our spirituality, it will take over in one form or another. We see this reflected in the New Testament. In, in Romans 1, Paul describes the degeneration for, from lack of submission to God, and the degeneration of, of, of the human personality down to Uh, compulsive enslavement to sexual sin. That's a a clear progression there in Romans 1. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, This is God's will for you, your sanctification, which is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Do you see that equation Paul sets up? First he says, God's will for you, each one of you, is that you be sanctified. And then he says, and sanctification is that you stay away from sexual sin. Then a little later on in that passage, down in verse 8, Paul says, if you reject this, you are rejecting God. You're not free just to disagree with me on this one. You're rejecting God if you reject that. And you go, whoa, wait a minute, Paul. That's kind of getting 
heavy here. You're pulling out the big guns. You're getting pretty uptight about this. Is this just because Christians tend to be all inhibited and uptight about sexual things? And like Paul, we get all intense when they start talking about sexual sin. Why do you think the Bible is so forceful when it talks about sexual sin? It's because the Bible is so realistic about real life. Let me ask you, you know what the word sanctification means? The word simply means to belong completely, entirely to God. The scripture talks about us being sanctified. It's talking about us belonging to God with no rivals, nothing else controlling our behavior and our hearts. Belonging to God exclusively. And the point Paul makes here is that you cannot belong to God completely if you're involved in sexual sin. Now, why not? It's important. Follow this. The reason sexual sin is in such contradiction to sanctification is that sexual sin enslaves. It is somewhat uniquely enslaving. It takes over people's entire personalities, agendas, their entire lives. Because it's such a powerful part of the human personality, when we sin in this area, it begins to exert an enormously powerful control. Let me ask you, is God uptight about sex? Not at all. He designed it. It's good. It is a loving gift, a generous gift from God. Well, what about sexual sin? Does that just particularly gross him out? No, I don't think so. You know, take, take homosexuality, for instance. Is that just so repulsive, so disgusting to him? No. The reason he speaks so strongly against it is because he knows that as a sexual sin, how enslaving it becomes. People who are entrapped in, in, in that particular sin, it becomes uh, something they're entirely absorbed in. It becomes their identity. All their life choices begin to revolve around their sexuality. All of their relationships, uh, it, it dominates their thinking. Becomes their very identity, who they are. See, sexual sin begins to take over our lives. Every area of our life, it honestly enslaves. Sexual sin is enslaving. And homosexuality is not unique in that. All sexual sin is enslaving. Adultery is a good case in point. See, people who are ensnared in that sin put at risk absolutely everything they value. I mean, men and women who love their families put their families at risk, knowingly put their families at risk, the almost certain destruction of the family unit. They put at risk their job, their, their spiritual lives, their financial future. They put everything at risk for this overwhelming compulsion. Begins to dominate every area of their life. Their thinking, their emotions, their finances, their time use, everything. Sexual sin enslaves. And this is true of all sexual sin. Whether it is uh, fornication or uh, addiction to pornography or incest, pederasty. I mean, you can just name the list. It goes on and on. Sexual sin enslaves. When something enslaves us, when something dominates us, we are no longer 
free to be totally God's, to belong to him completely, without rival. And that's why God speaks so strongly against sexual sin. It's not that he's inhibited and uptight. It's that he loves us and wants to spare us the enslavement and the destruction to our lives and personalities that it inflicts. So in the uh, Old Testament, God speaks very clearly. Proverbs 5, for instance, he says, Stay away from adultery. Don't even get near to the edge. It's got a crumbling lip. And if you come up to the edge, it's going to crumble out from under your feet and you're going to slide in. Just stay away from it. It looks so sweet and good. And it feels so enriching. But in the end, it is all destruction, utter ruin is the words he uses. The New Testament, in 1 Timothy, we are told to flee lust, to just get away, turn and run. It doesn't say stand there and overcome it. You know, most sins were to resist and and to overcome. On this one, he says, give it a wide berth. Don't get anywhere near it. Now, why the difference? Well, I think the difference is that our sexuality is always with us. And we don't know when it's going to assert itself. You may not like to hear this, but people, Christians, are no different than anyone else. In the feelings, in the urges, in the desires, in the deep longings that are related to us as sexual beings. And Christians do not attain final victory to become immune from sexual temptation. It doesn't happen. A victory today doesn't, ins- doesn't in- uh, ensure us against a counterattack tomorrow. It is always with us. And it's something we have to take very seriously, something we have to look at very honestly, something we hear, something we see. Uh, a touch, a look, an expression of appreciation or respect. Suddenly uh, we, we feel the, the uh, kind of the, the sexual energy becomes charged or our deep longings within us are touched and we find ourselves in a struggle to keep our spirituality, our submission to God in control of our sexuality, the choices that we're making. One of the keys is to begin to organize our lives in such a way that at those moments when we're under attack, at those moments of weakness, that falling, giving in to that, will be as absolutely difficult, as close to impossible as we can. We need to build walls around us. As as, um, Jerry Jenkins, in his book Hedges, he calls them hedges, walls we build around our lives to protect ourselves. I'm talking. I'm calling them bicycle helmets that we wear all the time. And isn't it enough to say, well, as soon as I start feeling those sexual feelings, just turn and run. Well, that's too late. It's like saying, isn't it enough to put on my helmet as I'm going down before I hit the ground? Doesn't work that way. That's too late. You see, these are things that we need to protect ourselves from all the time. We need to take seriously most times sexual sin is not uh, a sudden uh, opportunity that that we lose control that happens but more typically it is a gradual moving across lines a blurring of those lines a failure to stop early on and to bring ourselves into check so again we need to to firm up those lines to clarify them to build the wall right there rather than drifting off until we find ourselves ensnared and entrapped 
Again, that's what I'm talking about in wearing helmets all the time. You say, oh, but won't I look dorky? Yeah. Won't I feel silly? Probably. But it's worth it. Isn't your life worth it? Isn't your family worth it? Isn't your spiritual, emotional health worth it? And most important, isn't your Lord and the honor of His name worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. Well, let me uh, suggest some uh, protections. What, uh, like I said, Jerry Jenkins in his book calls hedges. In fact, let me recommend to you this book. It's called Hedges, Loving Your Marriage Enough to Protect It. Um, This is a book that uh, Hardin and Maxine, when they first gave me my copy, told me this is a book that Luis Palau said he wished he had written. Jackson told me that uh, Larry Crabb said this is the one book he'd give his son. This is a book that's filled with ideas on how to protect your marriage, caring enough about it to not be sloppy. But let me give you some that I listed out. Some I got from him, some I got elsewhere. Some, uh, All of these are, are things that, uh, uh, that I think important. I, I printed them up, so if any of you want them, there's some in the back. And let me just read this for time's sake. Number one, if you're in an affair, get out now. The only way out is to tell someone. Almost all affairs, at least at first, are based on secrecy. Break the secret. Tell someone and seek help getting out. Number two, if you are tempted now, if you're moving toward this, tell someone. Even if you're just infatuated, recognize that this is natural. Don't get hung up on the question, how could I feel this way? I'm supposed to be a Christian. You know, we need to be real. We need to be honest. We all have feelings. The problem isn't the feelings. The feelings come and go for everyone. The issue is how we deal with those feelings, what we do with them. I can't uh, make too broad a generalization on this point, but I would recommend in most cases, if you're having feelings for someone other than your spouse, and this is more than just a one-time feeling, Talk it over with your spouse. Now, there may be some situations where that's not advisable. So in those situations, find someone else and talk to them. No secrets. Number three, never meet with one person of the opposite sex alone outside of the office. Don't travel alone with someone of the opposite sex. Don't dine alone, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Don't meet with them after hours when the office is deserted. If you need to meet away from the office, make it a threesome. Have someone else there, even if your spouse needs to come. This is one of the uh, dorkiest feeling of the helmets. I mean, it, it, it's, it feels silly telling a work associate, you know, that I, I really can't ride with you to that meeting alone. I, I, I really, for the sake of my marriage, have decided not to have meals with someone of the opposite sex alone. These kind of things, they, they feel foolish. You know, after all, you know, isn't this the 90s? Yeah, this is the 90s. All full of adultery and divorce. It may interfere with business, but it is worth it. Be sure not to insult the person you're working with as if they're not to be trusted. That's not the issue. Just explain that it, as a rule that you and your spouse have chosen to live by. They will respect you for it. Number four, no touching beyond what you do with both sexes. If you're a man, don't touch another woman differently than you would touch a man. If you're a woman, don't touch a man differently than you would touch another woman. Touch can be very powerful for good and bad. 
Number five, no flirtation. As innocent as it may start, it is too easy a door to explore another person's possible interest. Don't even allow the possibility of finding out. This also applies to flattery, suggestive conversation, talking about topics, or talking in a way you would not want your spouse standing next to you in the conversation. Compliments and honesty are good things, but be sensitive to the impact on others. Number six, find someone of the same sex with whom you can share, who you can talk about your struggles, who will ask you about your thought life, relationships, conduct, and marriage. Meet with this person or these people regularly. Number seven, actively seek to cultivate your marriage, getting to really know your partner. Now, first of all, realize that there are many ways to kill a marriage other than just adultery. Don't justify dereliction of your marriage just because you're not having an affair. Plan and keep a regular time with your spouse every day that you can talk about your feelings. Don't bring work home. Be home when you're home. Have at least one evening a week to be with your spouse and family, focused entirely on them. Number eight, don't sexually withhold from your spouse. If things are not working out sexually for you, seek help. Do not settle for not good in your sexual relationship. Never demand nor force sex with each other, but together agree that you won't neglect working on that part of the relationship. It may be incredibly hard and painful at times, but never give up. Keep pursuing. Keep working on it. Also realize a poor sexual relationship with your spouse is no excuse for an affair. And quite honestly, it usually isn't the motivating factor in affairs. It usually comes later as an excuse. But loving, but your sexual relationship with your spouse is a vital part of loving them and dealing with the issues present in your marriage. As you work on your sexual relationship, you'll be forced to look at other areas of your personalities, needs, and relationship. Number nine, and this is the last one, review your wedding vows together. These are the promises you spoke to each other. This is the covenant you made, and you need to remind yourself of it. Marriage is an, is an extremely important matter to God. To some degree, he designed marriage so that we could have a glimpse of the love and commitment that he has for us, his bride. In the Old Testament, the marriage picture between God and his people emphasized the importance of the covenant the promises spoken. There is nothing that God takes more seriously than his word. And we, if we are to be like him, should do the same. We must take our word seriously. There are no more important words spoken than those we have spoken to our husband or to our wives. Now, this list is not intended to be a law by which we judge each other. You know, aha, I saw you doing this or not doing that. Uh, to, to impose on everybody, to, to get uptight about things. This is not uh, intended to, 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 to make us feel like, okay, if, as long as I follow this list, I'm doing okay. That's Phariseeism. We kind of cut God out and dependence on God out by following the rules. And that's not what we're talking about here. In fact, what we're doing has exactly the opposite intent, to free us to belong entirely to God, to engage with God, to talk to Him about these things. And I encourage you to talk these things over with God. There, these lists are in the back, but there are other lists. I also encourage you to talk to your spouse about these things. Think it through with them. Find out for yourselves what would really be effective and helpful for each of you. But please don't say, ah, we don't need to. 
That's naive to the point of irresponsibility, negligence. Anyway, these are just some ways to protect your marriage. It's worth protecting. It's foolish not to. I want to go on and talk some about uh, the next commandment. But before we do, let me just finish this one by reading a couple of verses from Proverbs 5. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your well. Rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated by her love. For why should you be exhilarated by another woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his foolishness, he will be lost. Don't be a fool. Well, we got probably about uh, five or ten minutes to look at the next commandment, the, uh, the, the eighth commandment, right in the next verse. You shall not steal. Pretty straightforward, right? Don't take anything that isn't voluntarily given to you. That's, that's the definition of stealing, taking something that isn't voluntarily given to you. Now, Voluntary giving doesn't necessarily mean gratuitous, like for nothing. It can be in response to quid pro quo. You could pay for it. The issue is whether it's voluntarily done. If the person chooses to give it to you in response to the deal or response to the goodness of their heart or response to whatever reason, it is voluntary. So, don't take something from someone they don't want to give. Simple. Now, usually the first thing we think about when we think of stealing, what we're thinking of is, you know, grabbing a loaf of bread and running down the street with it. Now, most of us, fortunately, would not do that. Sometimes I'm astounded what most of us would do. Many of us would feel pretty good about closing a deal where we came out way ahead, even knowing that the other person was hurt that the other person lost big time. We wouldn't hesitate to take advantage of their need to leverage, to, 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 to make our position better, to get more for ourselves. But are we taking what is voluntarily being given? Or are we taking more, using their need, using our power to take what we want? See, in Deuteronomy, God is fiercely defensive of those without power. He fiercely defends the rights of the, the poor and the widow and the fatherless and, and, and the, the stranger. People who have no power, who have no, no influence, who have no financial leverage. But you say, well, business is business. But not for a believer, it's not. Now, it's true that, that a Christian business person needs to make a profit. But a fair profit, not one that comes from taking advantage of another person's weakness or need, not one that gains advantage through deception or not keeping one's word or pressure or power leverage. And 
That is stealing, even if it's legal. Unfortunately, we live in an age and in a time where the only question is, can I get away with it? Not, is it right? It's what God would have me to do. And besides uh, the uh, Christian, Christian business person, how many of us who call ourselves Christians maybe fudge some on our taxes, make it work out just a little bit better? Or how many uh, steal from our employer, bring stuff home that, uh, they, that, that would work real nice around the house, but that the employer hasn't voluntarily given? Or how many of us steal time? from our employer. When it comes to stealing time, how many of us steal time from our families? We take what is not voluntarily given. What about uh, taking advantage of government programs or big insurance companies or big business? Somehow we think, well, they're big. They they won't be hurt by it. It's okay. But we're figuring wrong. When, When we're thinking like this, we're missing the whole point. We're not even in the ballpark when it comes to God's designs and God's plans. Let me uh, lay out for you just a couple of very important principles. I'll just briefly put them in front of you. First comes from Ephesians 4. In, in that passage, Paul is talking about the changes that happen when we become a Christian, the things that change. And one of the things he, he says is, Let him who steals, steal no longer. But rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who is in need. See, stealing is a perversion of God's whole design for things, for for wealth, for possessions. See, we work hard so that we can have the privilege of being like God and generously giving to those in need. That's the design. God blesses us materially, financially, so that we can have the joy and delight of blessing others. Acts 20, verse 35, Paul said, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, stealing is a focus on getting, not on giving. Deuteronomy 23 and 24, God tells people who have a lot of money not to charge interest to those who are really in need and hurting. And later on, he, he, he talks to those who own a, a big field. He says, don't harvest the corners of your field. Leave that for those who don't have anything so that the poor have something to eat. That's bad business. It was good faith. Again, God blesses us so that we can have the delight of being like Him and blessing others, giving freely to others, even giving back to Him. In First Chronicles, King David prays, and he prays with profound gratitude. He says, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able? Everything comes from you. And we've given you only what comes from your hand. He is so amazed that God gave them so that they could even give it back to him. Express their love and their their gratitude. And that, that really leads to the second principle about stealing. Stealing is, in its essence, a lack of trust in God's ability or his willingness to provide 
what we need. It's saying, I will have what I think I need or what I deserve regardless of God's views on this subject, on this matter. You see, God provides what we need. Out of His goodness, out of His generosity, He gives to us. Now, He calls us to work, to do our best, to the best of our ability, for His glory, to honor Him. But He provides for our needs. And this is important. Listen to this. God provides for our needs out of His generosity. But He also withholds out of His generosity. When He's not giving us what we think we need what we think we have to have. He's doing that for a specific, intentional design. He's wanting to accomplish something in our lives. He's wanting to speak to us. He's wanting to show Himself to us. He's wanting to bless us in another way. But we refuse that generosity. We become so focused on acquiring, so focused on the gift, that we won't listen to the giver. We won't even look at the giver. We push him aside and grab for ourselves. And we live in a culture and a society that encourages that. You know, what do you think those mailings for new credit cards all the time? What's the message there? You can have it now. Just charge it. But if you don't have the money to pay for that, that's stealing. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying credit is all wrong and sinful and that any debt is is bad. I'm not even saying we should just resign ourselves to whatever kind of financial situation we're in and do nothing to improve our situation. Uh, There's nothing wrong with trying to improve our financial situation as long as it's not done in defiance of God and refusal to depend on Him. And the way we know that we are acting in defiance is that we begin to compromise our integrity in the process. We begin to steal in one form or another. Let me ask you, how much is your soul worth? If you gained the whole world, lost your soul, what would you have? And which would you rather, extreme wealth or God? And what good is wealth without God. First of all, he can evaporate it in seconds. And even if he doesn't, second, secondly, having the wealth without him, the joy, the peace, the contentment, the satisfaction is evaporated anyway. You don't have anything. Again, let me ask you, how much is your soul worth? See, in both of these commandments that we've talked about this morning, it really boils down to accepting from God's hand what He gives. To being delighted with it, enjoying it. And then seeking to be like Him in, in our faithfulness and in our generosity. See, our sexuality, our, 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 our possessions, our generous, loving gifts from God, He gives them to us to enjoy, to be delighted with, for fun. But he also tells us how to use them in a healthy way so that we don't become enslaved to them. You see, when we refuse to trust him and listen to his word, we become slaves of the gifts, either to sexual sin or to greed and avarice. Again, listen to God's word. He gives it to us out of his love. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Let's pray.
Lord, we uh, do want to receive this. We fight so hard to convince ourselves that we can live an unreal life. We can pursue sexual sin and it'll all work out. We can pursue uh, materialism in defiance of you and it'll all work out. And it doesn't work. We destroy ourselves and people around us. But constantly, Lord, we are pulled back into this. We need your spirit in us to open our eyes, to help us hold on to the truth that that illusion, that seeing with our eyes, with the flesh, is all lies. That the truth, seeing with the eyes of faith, is that you are good and you give these things out of your goodness. Lord, free the captives. Free our hearts from its, their enslavement to attraction to these things. Lord, I pray by your spirit that you would open the lives of anyone here who is really ensnared and entrapped, and that you would set the prisoners free. I pray this in your name. Amen.